This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Jane, it's funny when someone tells you that you can't do something, it makes you want to do it even more. Totally. <laughs> One of my favorite movies, maybe not currently, but when I was a kid, was Pollyanna. Mm. Have you ever seen Pollyanna? I have. It's Haley Mills, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. And you know, toward the end of the movie, she wants to go to the carnival, and mm-hmm. her aunt says that she can't go, so she climbs out the window, and she mm-hmm. makes it to the carnival just fine. You know, she's virtually unscathed, but it's the coming home when she gets in trouble, mm-hmm. and she ends up plummeting to the ground and becoming paralyzed. I'm like, well, you know, that's just too bad because <laughs> if her aunt had let her go in the first place, that wouldn't have happened. Oh, that's an interesting argument. Yeah, that's true. And that's sort of what happened with the prohibition, I guess you could say. Indeed. Yeah. And uh, what we're talking about is the alcohol prohibition of uh, the 1920s in the U.S. And um, uh, it was called at the time the Noble Experiment, which I find really interesting that it was called that because it sort of had the idea that um, well, obviously it's noble. It, it's like, it's an important thing, uh, morality wise, but also that it might not work. It's just an experiment and <laughs> we're not sure what's going to happen. And it actually, it kind of failed. <laughs> it did. And it's so funny, that term noble. I think that that really brings up the question of morality and mm-hmm. ethics mm-hmm. in terms of alcohol. And even today, I may be out of line saying this, but I feel like in America, it's it's a really hot debate about whether or not drinking is wrong or right or how old should you be when you drink? How much should you drink? Should families introduce their children to alcohol at a younger age? I feel like in other countries or other places where there isn't a drinking age or it's, you know, not as old as ours. Where they let them drink at like 13. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, it gradually is introduced into your life and Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the culture and it's not this taboo issue. Yeah. It's interesting difference. And even today in America, we have plenty of towns and counties that are dry, so-called dry, and that, in that they don't sell alcohol at all. And I would argue that prohibition forever affected the American point of view about alcohol. You think and so? even mm-hmm. though it was repealed, I think we still look on it as, you know, an object that is taboo. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, 
it, it had its roots before the 20th century. It's interesting to look back as far back as 1846, Maine actually as a state, uh, was the first state to pass a statewide prohibition law. And so they, and they, and so they sort of set a precedent that, that gained some, some fever. And before that, in 1838, there mm-hmm. was a, a law in Massachusetts passed that only allowed people to buy alcohol in really large quantities. And the idea behind that was that the poor people couldn't get to it. And, that's what's so funny about prohibition are these ideas that people held about alcohol, the yeah. idea that only um, Irish and German immigrants were the ones who abused it or the idea that it was evil or that if you drink it, it would lead to insanity or abuse or poverty. And even Henry Ford yeah. was one of the more famous advocates of prohibition, and he had the idea that it decreased worker productivity. And I know even today there are people who... It suggests that when you're buying a car, you should ask to see the manufacturing report. And if that particular car was manufactured on Monday or Friday, don't get it. Because people are either, you know, getting drunk for the weekend or they're hungover from the weekend. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, or even people who say that they won't eat out in restaurants the day after a holiday Mm -hmm. because the people are hungover. It's just (laughs) so funny to me. But anyway, back to the point. Um, So we have this idea that alcohol is is bad. And we're coming off of World War One and we're seeing, you know, a larger influx of immigrants to the United States. Yeah, and to your point, uh World War One is where we get a lot of the anti German sentiment. At least it, it uh came to a boiling point at that point. Obviously the United States was fighting against Germany in the war and so um uh Non-Germans in the United States would look on Germans as sort of like, are you, they're suspicious, like, uh, are you favoring German in this, Germany in this war and, et cetera. And, uh, so, and Germans obviously were also associated with beers. I mean, you look at the names of beers like Budweiser and like all different names. It's, uh, it's all German basically. So many beers are German. And in the United States at this time, a lot of the breweries were actually owned by Germans. Anheuser-Busch, for instance. Yeah. That was a German-run brewery. So there's this idea some historians say that prohibition was a result of this idea of, of was white Anglo-Saxon Protestants wanting to suppress uh, people who are not like them. So whatever the cause, if we look at a rough timeline of how prohibition came into existence, we see that there were a lot of local and state-level laws passed first outlawing alcohol. Right. Maine went dry, like Jane said, in 1846, and rural areas went dry in the West and the South, but urban areas were a little bit more resistant. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also interesting that uh, this was often associated with women's movements throughout the 19th century. Women were a strong force, along with the progressive movement, obviously, of getting women the, the right to vote. There was also this, this corresponding idea of prohibition. Right. In 1873, the mm-hmm. Women's Christian Temperance Union formed, and they were famous in Ohio, especially of going to saloons and, and praying on the saloon floor. You know, they mm-hmm. wanted men to abstain because they were the people that, that uh, the nation turned to to be lawmakers and leaders. And, and women didn't have a voice at this time, like you were saying. And so mm-hmm. if men were drunk and they weren't able to carry out those duties, who would the nation look to? And one really famous female pro-temperance figure was Carrie Nation. And she was famous for her hatchet and walking around, sort of, you know, <laughs> wielding the hatchet to discourage people from going into saloons. And her husband was an alcoholic. And so she witnessed firsthand yeah. the so-called dangers of alcohol. And in 1869, a couple of years prior to this union really taking off, the Prohibition Party actually formed alongside mm-hmm. the Republicans and the Democrats because yeah, people were, felt like they mm-hmm. weren't getting a voice. Their voice wasn't being heard by the Republicans or Democrats. Yeah, and we can think about this so like the third party system and the idea that it'll come up over a certain idea in particular. 
And uh, hopefully one of the parties, Republican or Democrat, will, will adopt it. And they weren't doing anything at the time. So that's why the prohibition movement were, got fed up with it and formed their own party. And they pointed out that there was a link between alcohol abuse and child abuse and crime and violence in the right. cities. Mm-hmm. And so finally, by 1919, 65% of the United States had banned alcohol at the local level. Yeah, and by 1919, uh, the Congress actually passed the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave uh, the government the uh, the power, basically, to enforce prohibition uh, among all the entire country, all of the states. And the funny thing about prohibition is this. The 18th Amendment outlawed the sale, the manufacture, and the importation of alcohol, but it never outlawed drinking it or possessing it. And so... If you already had a lot of alcohol in your storehouse, you could keep it. You yeah. know, if you had a flask and you had mm-hmm. somewhere to fill it, you could do that. You could bring it around with you. You just couldn't import it. You yeah. couldn't sell it. And I guess sort of the idea behind that is to enforce the drink, like, uh, to enforce prohibiting the drinking of it would be too difficult, I guess. Obviously, if someone's wine cellar is stocked, you can't go into their, their house and destroy their property. That would be too, going too far. And most there, people, like, there wasn't enough manpower to do that yeah. either. And that's what was so tricky about prohibition in mm-hmm. the 13 years that it lasted, is that it was so hard to enforce. And the Volstead Act followed the 18th Amendment. Mm-hmm. And this is what was um, outlining the different enforcement policies that the government had in terms of prohibition. So it discussed the penalties to drinking, um, the exceptions, like if you were using it for religious purposes, that mm-hmm. was okay. And also it defined the legal limits of the alcohol content for beverages. Yeah, it said it at about 0.5% uh, percent alcohol was over the legal limit. Um, and to give you a point of reference, I think like an average, like a weak beer basically is 4%. So that's a, a pretty low uh, limit right there. So you could drink, I guess. It's just that whatever you were drinking wasn't going to get you drunk. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Especially the imagination. That's true. And what's interesting about the Volstead Amendment, I didn't know this until I started researching for this podcast, was that Woodrow Wilson actually vetoed it. And um, it was interesting to me because I, I know uh, Wilson in history as sort of a progressive. He was one of the most progressive um uh, presidents in the United States, and, and prohibition was a progressive movement. But um, apparently, some historians say that uh, Wilson found it unnecessarily authoritarian, basically. And uh, you can make that case because um, the idea of enforcing the Volstead Act became a huge headache, and obviously, it showed how how authoritarian the the law really was. And it was progressing the nation in. A strange direction. Mm -hmm. And today, I don't know if there are still people who advocate prohibition, or at least there are people who probably do promote temperance. But Mm -hmm. prohibition led to some really nasty stuff. And it's true. Again, like we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, if someone tells you you can't do something, you're going to find a way around it. And usually the way around it is going to lead to breaking some other rules. And organized crime took off Exponentially. I, I can't even begin to, you know, describe how bad it got. You know, you look at someone like Al Capone mm-hmm. and the speakeasies that he ran and all the gangs that resulted from this yeah. and all the bootlegging and even European rum fleets. Like people would ride out to the different bodies of water around the U.S. and, and meet European ships that had rum waiting for them and they would bring them back. Yeah. And speaking of speakeasies, obviously those were, those were illegal bars during the prohibition. Um, 
they actually surged. And if you look at the numbers, there were more speakeasies during Prohibition than there were legal bars before Prohibition. Isn't and that, that just boggles me. Yes, it is. And so you look at all this crime that came about as a result of Prohibition. And when the Depression onset, people started getting really ticked off because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the money that came from the legal taxation of alcohol could have been supporting the country's economy. And instead, this money was going to gangsters like Al Capone, yeah. who were making a mint off something that was illegal. And it's interesting to look at the money aspect of this. I, I actually had researched um, the IRS for an article I was doing, and the IRS was actually charged with basically enforcing prohibition. And I was really interested to learn this because you would never think that. But it was the idea of there was revenue passing hands and, and um, it was not being taxed. And that was the main way that we could track down or the, the government could track down illegal transactions was the idea of money being around and, it, and there's no proof of taxation. And so that was the way that obviously Al Capone was caught. Right. Exactly. After all the murders that he oversaw and mm-hmm. all the gang activity, it was on um, tax fraud, essentially, or tax evasion that he was he was canned, essentially. Yeah. And sorry, it's it's interesting that um, that also the dangerous things that came uh, as a result of prohibition was that um, this whole atmosphere of, of criminal activity actually exposed more people to dangerous drugs. People like historians look back and they're like, oh, these people are hanging around. Uh, illegal crowds, basically criminal crowds, and and so it exposed everyone to more dangerous things. And one thing that got me as well was the idea that there was still liquor around that needed to be used for industrial purposes during the prohibition. And so uh, the uh, the government started contaminating this liquor, and and so that people wouldn't drink it. And and I guess they didn't get the word around enough because it resulted in in lots of deaths. I think uh, adulterated liquor caused uh, fifty thousand deaths. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And what's more, people trying to manufacture their own liquor, sometimes right. it would be made really, really dangerously, mm-hmm. and so ingesting it could mean death. And bathtub gin, obviously. Bathtub gin, like, yeah. yeah. And that was one of the strange things about prohibition is that mm-hmm. for every pro, there was a con. So the number of deaths related to cirrhosis of the liver from yeah. drinking too much alcohol went down. But like you were saying, the number of deaths from drinking contaminated liquor or home manufactured liquor went up. And oddly enough, alcoholics, the number of alcoholics went up as well. Yeah. So more alcoholics, but pro, less people drinking alcohol. Yeah. And so finally, people could see the prohibition was not working. There was no way to enforce it. And so in 1933, the amendment was overturned. And so far, it's the only amendment in the Constitution to be overturned later again by yeah. another constitutional amendment. And it's interesting also, it, the the amendment that overturned uh, prohibition uh made sure to make allowances that states could. At the local level, you can ban liquor as much as you want. Um, and one historian noted that there's only two ways for an individual, just a single person, to uh, violate the Constitution. One is to enslave someone, and the other is to bring alcohol through a dry county. And Isn't that's wild. bizarre to think about. It's yeah. your opposing ends of the spectrum yeah. there. <laughs> and ideas of temperance continue to pervade our national culture, especially in places in the South. We see that mm-hmm. temperance is, is really strongly advocated, and yeah. you see that most dry counties are in the South today. Mm-hmm. And something interesting that I was reading, um, I love, 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 love Letitia Baldridge. I think she's a great writer. Yeah, she yeah. was Jackie Kennedy's social secretary during oh. the, the Kennedy years and in Camelot, and she was recounting in one of her memoirs that there was a big formal event that Kennedy was hosting. It was one of the 
the first ones, and mm-hmm. she was, you know, helping to plan it. And she didn't think anything of it, but she had a little station set up in the ballroom where people could go over and, and mix their drinks. Yeah, sure. And everyone looked at the White House, and they decried Kennedy as someone promoting, you know, revelry and alcoholism. It was just a mess. And wow. Kennedy got really mad, and he was like, Letitia, next time you mix the drinks in the back. <laughs> day, it might not be as big of a deal, but, you yeah. know, during that time, it certainly was, because... You know, mm-hmm. think about it. Only a few decades had passed since prohibition had been overturned and people mm-hmm. were still learning how to be temperate with alcohol. And that's yeah. that's the main thing that people have to do, I think, in our cultures. You know, you set your own levels for temperance. And there are laws that dictate the legal drinking age and, you know, which counties are dry. But, yeah. you know, it really is a personal choice in the end. Yeah, that's true. And it makes sense now this local level. I, I wanted to give a shout out to, to Maryland, my home state, um, because during Prohibition, it got the name of uh, Free State. A nickname is Free State because they weren't they didn't really like enforcing Prohibition. And uh, it, it sort of ticked off uh, the government at the time. And, and Maryland was known as sort of free liquor. Place. Oh, Lady Jane. Yeah. My goodness. That's where I get it from. <laughs> well, if you want to learn more about prohibition and temperance and alcohol in general, be sure to check out HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Home, a PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.